This morning we're going to begin a four-part mini-series, which I'm calling Walk, okay? Walk. And uh, it takes place right here in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 through 21, where Paul exhorts the Ephesian Christians to imitate God by walking in four things that characterize God. Five, or four behavior traits, if you will. Our mini-series will look like this. Part one, walking in God's love. That's verses one through seven. That's today. Part two will be walking in God's light. That's verses eight through 14. Lord willing, that's next week. Part three, walking in God's wisdom, verses 15 through 17, and then we have part four, walking in God's spirit, verses 18 through 21. So that's how verses 1 through 21 are laid out in chapter 5. We're going to be looking at God's love, God's light, God's wisdom, God's spirit. Big idea, walking in those characteristics, being in the likeness of God, if you will. And so, again, today is part one. We've already read our main text out loud. Thank you for doing that, Harry. I don't know where you went. He's right there. He didn't go anywhere. Uh, he always sits there, too, so I'm looking over here. That just shows how discombobulated I am this morning. I, I think it would be fit to pray before we uh, enter into this time of study. Father, um, I just pray that you would ease my heart and calm my heart and just running around trying to do many things this morning and being distracted by busyness. And, uh, and so, Lord, I pray that you would fill me with the Holy Spirit and allow me this great honor and privilege to proclaim your word. Uh, equally important is that the people that are listening today would hear, not just hear, but believe, not just believe, but live and do. And so, Holy Spirit, we pray that you would work your supernatural power in this service and change us, uh, convict us, change us, and be glorified in all that we do. Help us with this very, very, very challenging, challenging piece of Scripture. And help us to put away with all distractions and just to yield ourselves to you now, Father. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, let's begin with verse, uh, I think we're going to look at 1 and 2a. 1 and 2a. So are you all over there at, at Ephesians 5? You're there? Everyone's there? You know how to find it and everything? Okay. Ephesians 5, uh, verses 1 through 2a. I call this section the plea. Okay? The plea. This is Paul's plea. Uh, therefore, he says, be imitators of God as beloved children or beloved children and walk in love. There's Paul's plea. And another thing that we notice here very quickly is that uh, what we see here is another exhortation. That means, and maybe you don't know what exhortation means, but it's like an encouragement to do something. And right here we see another exhortation. In our previous section, Paul basically said, be different. He exhorted the Ephesian believers to be different from the Gentiles. That's regular people, unsaved people around you. He said, man, be different from the normal, unsaved, non-Christian people around you and be like God in true righteousness and holiness. So that's 
an exhortation that we saw in the previous section. Now in verse 1 he says, In essence, as God's beloved children, imitate God by walking in God's love. That's what he says. And I've said some things to you. I've exhorted you already to put off the old and to put on the new. And now I'm telling you in a similar way to imitate God. In the previous passage he said, be like God in the likeness of God. And now he's saying, be an imitator. So this is another exhortation that's very similar to the one in the previous section. Be different from the Gentiles around you. Now he's saying again, in another way, imitate God by walking in God's love. Therefore, right there in the text, uh, the line begins with the word therefore, I think probably in most of your translations. That refers back to the last part of chapter 4, especially verse 32. Kindness, tenderness, and forgiveness, which is mercy, are characteristics of God, who is love. God himself is infinitely kind and tender and forgiving, and we achieve those virtues by imitating their source. Their source is God when we, we achieve those virtues, when we imitate him. Verse 1 is linked to John 13, 34, where Jesus told his disciples to imitate him. Back when Jesus was doing ministry for about three years or so, maybe a little longer, his earthly ministry, he was walking around with 12 guys, healing people and proclaiming the gospel, those things. He actually exhorted his own disciples, the 12, to imitate him. It says, John 13, 34, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. How? Just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. Jesus basically said in that text to his disciples, imitate me. Paul in our text is saying, imitate God. Very similar stuff. Now let's take a look at some of the key words of verse 1. Imitator. Oh, this is a tough one to pronounce. It's, it's mimetes in Greek. Basically, from it, we get the word mimic. We've all heard that word, I think. I don't know if people even use that anymore. Mimic, mimic me. Mimic. The verse could read, therefore, mimic God. Imitate and mimic mean the same thing. The word picture here that comes to mind, at least to my mind, is that of a person standing in front of a mirror. A mirror provides an exact representation of the one standing in front of it, does it not? Now, I know that there's variations with the lighting and all that, but, you know, when you stand in front of a mirror, you, you see exactly what's there. And for most of us, that's not all that encouraging. One more line, one more wrinkle, more gray hair, right? In my case, more neck beef. Love it. I'm just wondering if I could stick something in right here hook it up to my Kirby, you know, just suck it right. I don't know if it'll work. That's disgusting. You look into a mirror, and if you go like this in the mirror, what happens? You see this in the mirror, right? I don't know what that means. I do. I do that in front of the mirror. But a mirror, that's what comes to mind here. He's talking about living in the likeness of God, imitating God, right? And so we get the idea of a mirror. If God is doing something in particular, we should be following that pattern, that example. Think of it like that. 
It's very similar to uh, a mirror. Another key word or key phrase is beloved children. Paul, again, makes it apparent that he is addressing believers, right? Because believers are God's beloved children, and only believers can imitate God. Why is that? Because believers are those former lost sinners who have been supernaturally changed by God through the power of the gospel, through the power of the word, through the power of the Holy Spirit. And so he's pointing to believers here. He's not talking about unbelievers. He's talking about believers. Believers are the beloved children of God. Imitate God as beloved children. If you're his children, imitate your father, is what he's saying. Unbelievers do what? They imitate other unbelievers. And in the grand ultimate sense of things, unbelievers imitate the devil whom the scripture says is their father. Which is a pretty frightening view or vision that I get when I think of that, but that's what the scripture teaches. Believers are referred to as beloved children. Now I want you to think about children just for a moment. It is natural for children to be like their parents, right? Of course. And, and I would just pause to say this is incredibly, why it's so incredibly important for parents to, to love God and to love one another rightly and to, to care for one another and to extend mercy and forgiveness and tenderness, the things that Paul's been exhorting the church to do here. This is why it's so important for parents to live, to do the best they can to live a righteous and holy life before their children because their children are going to take on the characteristics that they see. Someone once said that with little ones, more is caught than taught. And that is absolutely true. Absolutely true. Children instinctively imitate their parents' actions and behavior. So Paul's point here, as the beloved children of God, his point is that believers should imitate their heavenly father in a similar way to how earthly children imitate their earthly parents. Now, the good news is, is that with the believer, God has given them a new nature and the Holy Spirit, and, and this, is, this is a total and absolute possibility. And not only is it a total and absolute possibility, it's requisite, it's required. We are, if we're, if we're Christians, we're to to live in the likeness of our Father in two particular areas, righteousness and holiness. It doesn't mean that we're perfect. But we see our Daddy, if you will, our Abba Father, and we say, okay, this is, this is what He does, this is how He behaves, this is, this is how He acts, and this is what we must do as His children. And by golly, we have the ability to do that through the Holy Spirit. We've been made like Him now. We are, we are partakers of the divine nature, if you will, Scripture says. Doesn't mean that we're God, but we have God-like characteristics now. We bear many of his attributes. We are like him. Walk, another key word. That's a Greek verb, uh, peripateo, peripateo. And it means to live out or to go about doing. 
to live out and to go about doing. Walking in God's love means to live in God's love and to go about showing it to others, especially to believers, to other believers. When we were unbelievers, we walked in what? We walked in trespasses and sins. We were, in a sense, the walking dead, like zombies, at least in the spiritual sense. But God has made us, if we're beloved children, if we're in Christ, God has made us alive in Christ by grace through faith. And, and now we walk in God's likeness as his children. We emulate and copy and follow his example. And in particular, we walk in love. And this is what Paul is saying. But it's really, really important at this point for us to understand what love is. What's love got to do, right? We have the most screwed up, on this side of heaven, views of love. We, we don't know what it is. We think we do. Well, we, we, boy, I tell you, this is why the next key word is love. Well, I know what that means. Do you? Now, there are four Greek words for love that are important for Christians to understand. They are eros, storge, phileo, and agape. Okay, those are the four. Those are important. I'll just quickly define them. Eros refers to sexual love. Uh, was also the name of the Greek god of love, Eros. Maybe you've heard of him. The Romans called him Cupid. You know, remember the little chubby fat guy? I love her, right? Remember that guy? You've seen pictures of the little goober? I always thought that was the cheesiest, stupidest thing. Valentine's Day, I don't know how many cards I got with that little sapsucker on there. And I don't know how many cards I dispensed. Here. You're my valentine. I hope you get hit with an arrow. That, it, it basically, but what it, eros is, is it's sexual sin. It's not, or it's, it's sexual love, if you will. It's not. That's, that's all it has to do with. Now, by New Testament times, this word had been or become so debased, so corrupted, so filthified, if you will, by the culture that it's not even used one time in the entire New Testament. You can't find Eros in the New Testament. Because that word is just associated with filth. The second one is storge. Refers to the love that is shown between a parent and their child. It's that sort of famil, or I don't know how you pronounce that word, I've never known how, but we'll say, fa is that what it, famil? Familiar? Eh, whatever. That's why I don't try. Family love. We'll call it family love. Huh? Right? See, I have to dumb down things for myself. Family love. It's the love expressed between family members, but more particularly between a parent and their child and the reciprocation of that. That's what storge is. Uh, there is, though, and another thing, too, about storge is it doesn't appear in the New Testament. So why are you talking about it? Well, I think it's important for us to understand that there's variations of love that still reign and rule today. 
Uh, there is a sort of modified version of it in Romans 12.10 where Paul tells the church to, uh, I would say it's philostorgos, that means to love each other with brotherly affection. So there's kind of a variation of it, but that's as close as you get. And then you have phileo. That refers to the warm affection which is shared between friends and family. It's a little different from storge, but it's kind of like maybe two friends sharing a total love and passion for the same hobby or something like that. Man, I love football. It can be something like that. Man, I love football and I love you, bro. <laughs> the other guy's going, this got awkward. Could we just stick to Green Bay? Right? That's phileo. It's kind of that brotherly affection, friend and family affection, maybe sharing a mutual interest and in loving something together. Uh, we see phileo in the word philosophy, which is the love of wisdom. We see it in philanth- philanthropy, which is the love of man. And we see it in Philadelphia, which is the city of what? Brotherly phileo, love, right? So that's phileo. It's kind of like this brotherly, family, affectionate sort of love. And then you have agape. It's different from eros. It's different from storge. It's different from phileo. It's completely different from them. In fact, it's not even of this world. It doesn't originate here. It's, it's supernatural, and it literally comes down to us from heaven. Agape is God's love. It is divine, it is perfect, it is pure, and it is for God's beloved child, ultimately and totally satisfying. It is self-sacrificing, right? For God so what? Agape, the world, loved the world, that he sent his only begotten son, Jesus Christ, to earth to die in our place on a cross as a sacrifice For sins, the cross is the greatest expression and symbol of God's agape, sacrificing or sacrificial love. That thing right there, it's too bad it's become a fashion symbol. Agape is is unconditional in a sense, meaning that it is not based on merit or worthiness. It cannot be earned. Agape is very much like grace. Grace is the unmerited favor of God. Agape is the unearned love of God. That's the way we should look at it. Agape, another characteristic about it is that it is perpetually pardoning. It extends, agape extends mercy and forgiveness, I would say to all, in a sense, especially to enemies and persecutors. And that's never our first inclination, is to love those who are hurting us or trying to harm us. But agape is that supernatural kind that does that despite what's coming. It does it while it's coming at us. I mean, isn't that the very essence of what God did? He sends his only begotten son into enemy territory. That's what he did. I mean, the world is at... engulfed in a spiritual war where it hates God and despises God and he sends his son into it. And Jesus entered into a battle zone. 
It's perpetually pardoning in that it extends mercy and forgiveness, especially to enemies and persecutors. It does something that is so foreign to, to what we're used to here and to what we're used to practicing and what we think. It, it, it even overlooks shortcomings. It, 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 it even responds to harshness with gentleness and grace. And I think equally important, it keeps no record of wrongs. That's the nature of agape. And as I've been describing it, doesn't that sound like a foreign kind of love? That doesn't sound like it belongs to this earth. That's because it doesn't. But it has come. So the grand question of all becomes, which type of love did Paul write about in verse 1? What was he speaking about? Eros, phileo, storge, agape? What was he referring to here, right? Because he said, love, walk in love. Okay, so let me read it out for you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in agape. That's what he said. It's translated as agape. So again, another question comes to mind because some of us might be pondering this. What does it mean to walk in agape? Well, I've just given you some of the characteristics of it, so I guess we can figure that out. But wouldn't it be helpful to have a few more guidelines here? Wouldn't it be helpful to have a pattern so that, okay, if I'm, if I'm a Christian, if, if, I, if I believe in the Lord, how, how am I going to do this? What's it look like? Is there a pattern, right? Because that's what's so great about the scripture. It doesn't just say, okay, here's what you're to do. It says, okay, here's how you do it. And that even exists right here in this text. The good news is that Paul included a pattern in verse 2b. Verse 2b. Look at it with me. I call this the pattern. <laughs> There's a lot of redundancy when I preach, and I just kind of, you know, this is the pattern. Who knew? As Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. There's the pattern. The pattern is Christ. More particularly, the pattern is how Christ loved us. How he expressed divine love toward us. That's the pattern. Christ loved us in a very unique and particular way. He, he did something special for us out of pure agape love. He did something for us that we could never do for ourselves. What did he do? How did he express this divine, supernatural agape love for us and also set a pattern for us to follow? Here it is. This is how he expressed it, and here's what the pattern has to do with it says he what? Gave himself up for us. What is Paul pointing to here? He is pointing to the cross. He is pointing to the atonement, the work that Christ did at the cross, which has to do with agape love. He is pointing to the bloody sacrificial death of Christ at Calvary for the removal of our sins so that we could become reconciled and restored to God. So that we could become what? Adopted. That we could become the beloved children of God. Notice the phrase, gave himself. This is so key. This is so critical. 
This was something, this giving of himself, this was something that Christ actually chose to do. It was an exercise of his own will to do this. He gave himself. Okay, in other words, Christ did this freely. He wasn't coerced. He wasn't forced. He willfully, and it says in Scripture, joyfully laid down his life for us. Now, years ago, there was this... uh, Big controversy going around. I remember this just as clear as a bell, man. It was especially on TV, you know. I kept seeing these commercials for it and all that. And and it was, who killed Jesus? Fox News was running it endlessly. Who killed Jesus? Right? You remember that? Am I the only fool in here that watches TV? Dang it. I remember it, man. It was like it was like around Christmas time or around East. I don't. When did he die? Thank you. I'm preaching. I don't know when he died. Easter, right? That was that Friday, right? Good Friday. And so it was coming. It came. This thing was starting to air like two weeks before, three weeks before Easter, and, and it's coming out. And who killed Jesus? And there's all this controversy, and there's all these programs. History Channel was running it endlessly too. And, and who killed Jesus? And some were saying, it was the Jews that killed Jesus. It was the Jews. The Jews did it. The Jews. Those nasty Jews. And then some were saying, no, it was the Romans. It was the Romans that did it. It was Potus Pilate. You didn't even get my joke right there? Potus? <laughs> Sorry, that was terrible. My wife will correct me and say, don't make political jokes in here. It was Pontius Pilate, he was a Roman, you know, the governor and all that, and, and it was, so it was the Romans that killed him. No, it was, the, it was the Jews that killed him. Well, how about we just uh, shake on it and say it was half Jew and half Roman. It was, uh, they're the ones that killed him. Everyone's going on and on and on about this stuff, and I'm watching the programs and I'm asking myself, why am I watching these programs? Let me tell you who killed Jesus. Jesus killed Jesus. That's who killed Jesus. How do I know that? Because he what? Gave. I'm yelling at the TV. Jesus killed Jesus. Bill O'Reilly. It was Jesus. It was God. Jesus killed Jesus. Prior to Jesus' death at Calvary, he said no one can take my life from me. I sacrifice it voluntarily. For I have authority to lay it down when I want. I can die when I want to die, and I also have authority to take it up again. For this is what my Father has commanded. John 10, 18. Who killed Jesus? Jesus. Was it suicide? No, it was sacrifice. Jesus allowed himself to be betrayed. Jesus allowed himself to be arrested. Jesus allowed himself to be tried in a kangaroo court. Jesus allowed himself to be beaten and spit on. Jesus allowed himself to be whipped. Jesus allowed himself to be crowned with thorns. Jesus allowed himself to be nailed to a cross and die at 3 p.m. If Jesus wanted... 
He could have had the Father, he could have summoned the Father and had the Father send 144,000 angels to defend him, right? We read about that in Matthew 26, 53. When he's arrested, he could have easily done that. To give you some perspective, a single angel killed 185,000 battle-hardened Assyrians. Isaiah 37, 36. But Jesus did not call upon the Father to do this for him. He did not call upon the Father to be rescued. Save me from my peril, Take this cup, if it's your will to do so. If not, I will follow your will completely. No, he, he didn't call out and say, deliver me from this and send the angels and kill all these guys. Kill the Romans and the Jews who were about to take me out. Rescue me. He didn't do that at all. He did what? He gave himself up for us. MacArthur wrote, the giving of oneself to others is the epitome of agape love. If Christ had been coerced, forced, or manipulated into giving himself up, he would not have been acting in agape love. Agape love has to do with making your own choice and being sacrificial. Agape love costs you something. It's saying, I'm going to sacrifice something out of love. That's what agape looks like. Agape love is costly love. It cost Jesus his life. It also, and we never think about this, not only did it cost him his life as a human being because he was nailed to a cross and died, it cost him his glory when he stepped out of heaven in the first place. He was made a little lower than the angels. Stepped off his throne, his eternal throne. Cost him his life, cost him his glory. Cost him some of his power, in a sense, as a weak human being like the rest of us. See, agape love is willfully giving love and sacrificing to do it. It costs. It's, it's the kind of love that we extend, and, and it hurts us a little bit to do it because we're going to have to do away with something else. We're going to have to put somebody before us. Notice something else with me. Christ's death on the cross became this expression of agape love at the cross, right? It became a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Paul pointed to the Old Testament here. Man's penalty for sin is death, has been since the fall. But God, who is rich in mercy, established a system that could temporarily, in a sense, deal with man's sin and keep him in right standing with God. The system was called the sacrificial system. Several times a year, people would bring an unblemished animal like a bull or lamb to first the tabernacle and then later, as the temple was built, to the temple. Why? To be sacrificed on an altar. And that would satisfy God's justice and wrath against sin for a period of time. The animal's throat would be cut. It, its blood would be sprinkled on the altar. And, and, and the priest would take and place the beast on the altar and burn it with fire. And then what would happen when something burns? Smoke is created. The smoke would rise up to heaven and it would create in front of God or before God a fragrant offering. That's what Paul's pointing to here. See, when Christ, the Lamb of God, gave himself up, right? He gave himself up, the Lamb of God, to be sacrificed on an altar, the cross, 
And what he bled had died. Because blood is essential. He became a fragrant offering to God. The ultimate fragrant offering to God in a sense. God accepted his death as a fragrant offering as he had received the death of countless animals as fragrant offerings throughout the centuries, but this one's far more significant because it's Christ. The death of Christ and this fragrant offering, this agape love, it is far more significant and impactful than anything from the bulls and goats that came before him. All of those animal sacrifices, all of those beasts being cut and bled out, slaughtered, if you will, and put on the altar and burned, they all point to Christ, in a sense, who is the final sacrifice. The entire sacrificial system was established for the ultimate purpose of pointing to Jesus Christ, the Messiah, who would lay down His own life, right? He laid down His own life, paid the full price for our sin with His own blood. The blood of bulls and lambs temporarily satisfied the justice and wrath of God against those sinners who brought them in faith and obedience. They would have to do this several times a year. The blood of Jesus, however, fully satisfied the justice and wrath of God against those who repent and come to Christ by faith. And the big idea that Paul is trying to get to here is that when we follow Christ's pattern and willfully sacrifice and lay down our lives for others, when we love them as Christ loved us, our actions and our efforts go up to God as a fragrant offering. That's what he's saying. When we display agape, we become a fragrant offering to God. Now, does, does this mean that we might actually have to physically die for people? Maybe. But I don't think Paul is pointing to physical death here, but to life, to living as a sacrifice. He has been talking about putting on the new self and living in likeness to God and imitating God by walking in love. Now, is God honored and glorified when a saint lovingly lays down his physical life and dies for Christ, like maybe the, well, they didn't maybe do it, they did it, but the Egyptian Christians in Libya that did that last year when ISIS beheaded them? Well, of course God is honored and glorified by that if we actually agape to the point of laying down our physical lives. Of course he's glorified by that. Psalm 16, 116, 15 says, Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. No saint dies in vain. We are precious in his sight. But let's not go too far with this. The Bible actually says very little about honoring and glorifying God through dying, but it speaks volumes about honoring and glorifying God through living. What God is actually calling us to do in this text is to die to our flesh and to live for Him by loving others with the agape love of Christ. And when we do this, our life becomes a fragrant offering like Christ's death became a fragrant offering on the cross. Now Paul did not stop there. Paul's got a lot more nails to put in the coffin here. 
because of widespread confusion about love during this time, he went on to describe the perverted types of love that were prevalent in Greco-Roman culture. Look at verse 3 with me. I call this section the perversion. I just love the way that the Holy Spirit inspired Paul to write because he just keeps lacing it together. He doesn't use generalizations. Do this and then move on to new things. It's like, do this, here's here's what you're to do, here's the pattern, here's the anti-pattern, which we'll all be familiar with. Verse 3, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Paul identified three perverted types of love here. Let's look at each of them. Number one, sexual immorality. Sexual immorality is pronounced porneo in Greek. Yes, it's where we get the word porno from. Porneo is usually, in the scripture, in the New Testament, used as a categorical term in reference to multiple forms of sexual sin. Sometimes in the scripture you'll just see the word sexual immorality show up. That's translated as porneo. It's kind of an all-inclusive word. It means all forms, varying forms of sexual sin. Now I'm going to quickly name five of them. These would be porneo. uh, These would be under the root of porneo, under the umbrella of porneo. They have to do with sexual sexual immorality, porneo. Perverted love. A, fornication. This is sex outside of marriage. Okay, that's what fornication means. Very often in the New Testament, you'll see the word fornication. Most of the time, you'll see sexual immorality, but it means fornication. And sometimes you do see fornication. That's sex outside, that's coming together with somebody, man and woman, Coming together, having sexual intercourse. I want to be as clear as a bell because today, well, you know, I didn't get it. That's what it means. Two people that are not married, not living in the bond of wedlock, not living in covenantal relationship before God, coming together and having sex. It's called fornication. It's under sexual immorality. It belongs to porneo. B, adultery. This is sex with somebody other than your spouse. Okay, we we call it cheating. We call it Ashley Madison, which was an entire website that was established just so married people could hook up with other married people and have affairs. And then by the grace of God, the whole thing was exposed. Maybe by the justice of God, the whole thing was exposed. Adultery, that's sex with somebody else. And we need to be careful here because it's not just sex with somebody other than your spouse. It's also lusting after another woman or man. C, we have homosexuality. This is sex with the same sex. Sex with the same sex. Not going into detail. D, we have pornography. Porneo. Pornography. This is lusting after sexual imagery. Maybe a video. uh, Maybe something that's been printed. Now, pornography... I'll go out on a limb here. 
I would say that it always leads to masturbation, which is sex with self. People don't watch, men don't watch pornography and then go mow their lawn. It's not what we do. We look at pornography and then we engage in sex with self. That's usually what happens. I'd say 99% of the time. Masturbation is nothing more than sex with the self. And if you're a man and you do it to yourself, or you're a woman and you do it to yourself, in a way, it's a form of homosexuality. Because you have a man having sex with a man. And then we have E, bestiality. That's sex with an animal. Well, we don't have to worry about that one. Are you sure? I just heard about a woman in Ghana who married her German shepherd. And I think that because of, and it's insane, right? I think that, because, well, the dog is so faithful. It's a dog. Of course it's faithful. And I think that because of this new gay marriage laws and these things, you're going to start seeing some of that stuff happen here because that's a gateway into all kinds of crazy. Why can't I marry my cousin? You're going to see it. Bestiality, it's sex with an animal. Unimaginable. All of them are unimaginable, if you think in a sense. I think some of them in our culture are definitely more acceptable than others. But at the rate that we're going at, they're all going to be full-blown probably in the next 10 years. Each of these, and that's just the small list, fall under porneo. And each of them were popular in Greco-Roman culture 2,000 years ago. Four of them are popular in the U.S. today, I'd say, right? A through D, those are popular here. And guess what? In many ways, the U.S. has become the new Roman Empire. And if we examine history, we will see what happened to the Roman Empire. It was destroyed by hordes and hordes and hordes of barbarians. And I think America's, there's a reckoning coming for America We've got 50 million aborted babies under our belt now. Lasciviousness gone wild, crazy, crazy stuff. It, it's a mystery as to how this country is standing now. We're sick. Number two, you have, and that's sexual immorality, right? That's one form of perverted love, all of those things. Uh, secondly, we have impurity. Impurity is akatharsia. In Greek, it means filth. <laughs> filth. In some instances, it is used in reference to idolatry. We see a hint of that in Romans 1.28. Here in this context, it may have to do with treating sex as an idol and worshiping it. To some, sex has become like a god, has it not? This was certainly true in Paul's day, and it is certainly true today. In 2006, Americans alone tithed $13 billion to their sex god through the pornography industry. Don't tell me it ain't a god. Don't tell me that people ain't worshiping it. 13 billion in 2006, they tithed offerings to that God by engaging in pornography. It's a huge industry. Playboy just 
began to, they just changed the whole way that they do things. They've taken naked women out of the magazine because they can't compete with all the other varieties of it. So now it's just about the articles. Because that's why I used to look at it when I was a young guy. So now it's just, it's like Maxim now. And I would say Maxim is pornographic in a sense, at least leading. Impurity, it has to do with that. It has to do with filthiness around sex, and it has to do with idolatry and worship and those sorts of things. It's that kind of love, which to me is not a love. And then you have covetousness. Covetousness, covetousness, pardon me, is pleonexia in Greek. We looked at that word last Sunday. It means greediness, with, uh, which is a strong desire to acquire more and more material possessions or to possess more and more things that other people have. In our context, it has to do with self-seeking love, that perverted self-seeking love, loving others so that we can get something from them. It even points to idolizing other people's relationships and spouses. Well, I wish my wife was like that guy's wife. Or I wish my husband was like that gal's husband. Or I would really like to be with that guy's husband. Or vice versa. Coveting the relationships that others have. Coveting the people that others are engaged in relationship with. Or beyond that, just coveting other things, period, and trying to amass in greediness things and things and things. Now, Greco-Roman culture considered sexual immorality, impurity, and covetousness to be legitimate forms and expressions of love. Now, here are some examples of how these things play out in our culture today. Okay, you ready? This is where the rubber meets the road for us. Listen carefully. If a boyfriend and girlfriend choose to lay together, choose to have sex... What's the trouble in that if they love one another? I've heard this a lot. What's wrong with that? They love each other. Doesn't God see their love? Doesn't God see their relationship? Doesn't God rejoice because of their relationship, because of their love? Doesn't he rejoice when they come together and become one flesh? No. This is a perverted form of love being expressed through sexual immorality. Another example, if a husband loves his wife so much that he puts her on a pedestal and worships the ground she walks on and he could never imagine living without her, that's true love, right? Doesn't God long for husbands and wives to love each other this way? That's got to be the ticket, right? Exalted that spouse to that high level. That's got to be God's will for my marriage. No. This is, the pervert, this is a perverted form of love being expressed through impurity. Remember the idolizing? Another scenario. If a wife or husband, well, we'll stick to wife for now because I've been hammering the husbands. You got you to, it's just, it's just an equal opportunity. You got to be fair because we all stink. If a wife chooses to love her husband so that he will make her happy by buying her things or whatever, what's the trouble in that? 
It's still love, right? No. This is a, the perverted or a perverted form of love being expressed through covetousness. This is loving someone to get something. You say, I would never do that. You probably are and just are unaware of it. What we call that in marriage is compromise. Well, I'll do this for you if you do that. Please. That was extremely awkward. We do that, though, right? It's, it's, we call it loving compromise. Actually, what it's called in the Bible is covetousness. Uh, which is another form of idolatry. Now, following Christ's pattern of love means that our love must be pure and sacrificial. It must be agape. It can't be the things that we've talked about. It cannot be based on any of the self-serving, sinful perversions that I've mentioned. Paul went on to say that those things, what? Must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. People should not be able to come to you if you're a believer and say, you're guilty of this, you've done this, we need to live above reproach. In fact, don't talk about these things. They have no place in the body of Christ. These perverted forms of love and sinful behaviors are totally improper among Christians. At one point, the Corinthian church had to expel a brother who would not repent of sexual immorality. He was actually laying with his mother-in-law. 1 Corinthians 5, 1 through 2. Because he wouldn't repent of that sin and he kept justifying and rationalizing his behavior, totally steeped in perverted love, spurned the correction of the elders of this church, he had to be expelled. He had to be what we would call excommunicated. He had to be removed. You see, the church must take sin seriously because sin defiles the church and dishonors its head, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. As individual Christians, we need to take sin seriously, not just corporately as a body, but as individual Christians. I need to take sin seriously in my life and as a pastor in the lives of others. And one of the problems in the church today is the church doesn't take sin seriously. Paul even goes on to warn the Ephesians about their speech. Look at verse 4. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. Paul pointed to three things here. Filthiness, foolish talk, and crude joking. Filthiness has to do with profanity, cussing. Guilty from time to time. Foolish talk has to do with idle words or wasteful speech, which basically is spending lots and lots of time talking about, talking about things that have no value, that have no eternal value, like soap opera relationships. I know this is sad. Sports. I know this is even sadder. Politics. Fashion. Holly Weirdwood. We just talk about stuff the things of the world endlessly. And you know what? That's called, in the Bible, foolish talk. You have crude joking, which is telling dirty jokes, especially sexual jokes. 
These types of speech, these perverted types of speech, are what? Out of place among believers, is what he says. Rather than speaking frivolously, engaging in these things, we are to speak fruitfully. By what? Giving thanks. Thanksgiving here means to express gratitude for our benefits and blessings. When we speak to each other, when we mix it up and mingle and hang out, we need to take time to share the good things that God has done and is doing and give thanks to God, give thanks for one another. We need to direct our speech away from the filth and into the thanks and into something that glorifies God. Paul's big point so far is that Christians are to imitate God, and he, got the, he flipped the order, in deed and word. Usually we say word and deed. That's the structure of one through, I'd say one through four so far. Imitate God in deed and word, right? We are to show God's love through acts of kindness, mercy, forgiveness, generosity, charity, right? Righteous, holy things. And we are to speak God's love by using words that do what? Build up and grace others. That's back in 429. That's what he's saying. As God's beloved children, imitate God. Love others as Christ has loved and died for you. Show that agape. And don't just show it. Speak it. And what happens? When we do these things, we are following Christ's pattern and we are walking in God's love, aren't we? Now let's look at the last two verses. Five through seven. I call this section the punishment. The punishment. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Verse 7, therefore, do not become partners with them. Now let's quickly break down these verses and then wrap it up. Paul told the Ephesians that those who practice perverted love and engage, those who are enthralled with perverted love and who practice it and engage in the things that he identified, sexual immorality, impurity, covetousness, those perverted versions of love, what? They will not inherit the kingdom of Christ and God. In other words, they will not go to heaven. Now I want you to notice an extraordinarily important word in verse 5. You should underline it in your Bible. It's everyone. Surely Paul was not speaking about or referencing believers here, right? Believers cannot lose their salvation and, 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 and be withheld from entering God's kingdom. He, he couldn't have had believers in mind here because we know the Bible says you can't lose your salvation and so on and so forth. Let me ask you a question. Who did he write the letter to? Believers? He's not speaking about unbelievers. The letter has nothing to do with unbelievers. It has everything to do with the church of Christ, with us. He wrote the letter 
to believers. So what is it then? Was he confused when he wrote this? Did he not understand eternal security? Is there a contradiction in the text? No. The key to understanding what Paul meant is back in Ephesians 4.21, where it says that Paul assumed that those who practice these things, the perverted love, sexual immorality, impurity, covetousness, those who practice these things and were unwilling to put an end to them, unwilling to turn away from them, who were fine with doing them, had yet to come to know Christ in a saving way and be taught in Him. Everyone in verse 5 has to do with unbelievers and more strikingly, false believers. And the church is filled with them. Because unbelievers are referred to as tares, believers are referred to as wheat, and guess what happens in the church? They rise up together. They're everywhere. There are tares in and out and throughout the church. And it is the tares that engage and practice in these things and don't have any problem with it. True believers, however, turn from these things And when they stumble periodically, they respond to their sin like King David in Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions, my adultery, my fornication. Blot out these things. Wash me thoroughly from my impurity and cleanse me from my sin. That, my friends, is the rightful response of the believer. And if you're a believer and not responding that way, you need to say, what is wrong with me? And true believers also fight. They fight against their flesh. And they fight for God's glory in their lives. And they fight for others, the purity of others, the struggles of others through prayer. Other brothers and sisters, they fight through prayer for them. One of the defining marks of a true believer is war. War against sin. Those who do not wage war against sin have not yet been converted to Christ. If you're actively engaging in these things, Paul says, I assume that you do not know Christ and that you have not been taught in him. You see, the Bible is far more black and white than we tend to make it. We like gray. There really isn't any gray in it. And we also need to be mindful of false teachers, right? Those who try to what? Deceive us with empty words? They say, it's no big deal if you sin. You've got the grace of God. Or sin doesn't even exist. There's no such thing of it. Do what you want. And it says here in this text that God's wrath is coming against those who believe and teach such things. They are the sons of disobedience. 
Are you a beloved child this morning? Are you a son of disobedience? Lastly, Paul wrote, do not become partners with them. In other words, do not believe deceivers who preach a false gospel of grace only and no repentance, no warfare, these free grace people that are out there. Don't believe them. Don't believe those who say there's no such thing as sin and just do whatever you want and everyone goes to heaven or whatever they say. Don't don't believe and don't join their cause. That's what he's saying. Let's wrap it up. What does God want you to take away from this very, I would say, very, very challenging text? Maybe, this is you, you thought you were a Christian because you prayed a prayer at some point. You grew up in a church or attended a church for a season, but, but now you realize that your thinking, heart, and actions don't line up with this text. Or maybe they do line up, but just in the negative part of it, not in the positive that's up front. Maybe you're a believer who periodically struggles with some form of sexual immorality. Maybe you realize, uh, this is you this morning, that you realize that your love is not like the love of Christ. It's not agape. Maybe it's perverted in some way. Maybe you've learned this morning that your speech is off what you say. I just want you to know something so important. It is so important that we recognize our sin. And it is so important that we recognize and realize that Christ came to die for our sin. Whatever you're engaged in, whatever you're involved in, Christ came to pay your debt. Because you know what? Every sin racks up debt. A debt we could never pay to God who created us in his likeness for his glory. Every sin racks it up. And he came to pay the total and absolute price. He, we, Kelly and I were talking about this earlier. He didn't come and put a deposit down. He didn't give us 90 days same as cash. He didn't give us 12 months free interest. He paid the whole debt. He paid for every sin that you've committed, that you commit now, and that you will commit. It's all paid for in him. It's paid for. He made an atonement. He paid for our sins. Came and died and paid price for our sins. If we turn to Christ and put our faith in him, God will apply that payment to our account. And he will cleanse us, he will forgive us and cleanse us of all our unrighteousness and restore us to right relationship with God. And if we believe in Christ, the Holy Spirit lives in us and gives us the power we need to turn away from sin, to turn away from perverted love and to follow Christ's pattern of walking in God's love. Let me encourage you. Whatever it is that God tells you to do this morning, no matter how difficult, 
You might think that, well, I, I'm, I'm engaged in some stuff, and, and I don't think I can get out of this. Is God telling you to stop? Yes. You know, let me just tell you. Let me just, let me just, just bring it down. When I got saved, <clears throat> I still looked at pornography for five or six months after I got saved. I wasn't in front of it every day, but there were times where I would slip away and try to hide from my wife and look at it. And uh, six months into it, you know, I got saved and I had all these new convictions. Here's the funny thing, how sin works, right? And uh, like day two of my salvation, I threw away like 300 DVDs and CDs. Of course, 24 hours later, I was trying to dig them out of the trash, but Carol came and got them. I mean, this is the conviction that I had. I was like, I can't have Pulp Fiction in my house. Are you kidding me? I'll watch it one more time, then throw it away. Right? Flesh. No, I, I just threw away everything. I got rid of all the music. All of a sudden, I started listening to all this Christian music, and I got rid of all the movies and all that. But somehow, I was okay with looking at pornography for about six months. And then I heard a sermon on it. And sexual immorality, and I went, ah, that's me. I, I've got to stop, but I don't know how. I don't know what, what I can do. I, I, I felt powerless, but I knew that I needed to get away from it. I had this conviction. You know, and at this point, what happens is people will tell you, well, you need to go to counseling, you have an addiction, you need to do all this stuff. I can't find any of that in Scripture. Funny, isn't it? You've got to go to celebrate recovery, and you need to do this and all that, and that's just a, a way, I think, for us to get rid of people. Okay, I don't have to deal with you anymore. You go over here and do what they tell you. And I went to a trusted brother, and I said, Dude, I know I'm a new believer and all that, and I threw away all my DVD collection and all these things, and, but, man, I'm really having a problem with, with pornography and, and the things that are associated with that. And he looked me in the eyes and said, Stop doing it. It's been 14 years since I've done it. 14 years. I didn't go to recovery. I didn't go through some process. I realized that I was in sin and I was wrong and I was defiling the church, defiling its head, destroying my marriage, destroying myself, hurting others around me. They didn't know about it yet. They would have, and it would have been so destructive. They know now. Aren't you glad your dad told you? I'm not special. I'm the weakest, most sinful person in this room. And I stopped. Why? Even after six months of being saved... I was already learning to value God's glory over my flesh. If, 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 if your sin is sexual immorality, if it's pornography, it's, if it's fornication, if it's one of these things, I want to be a trusted friend to you and say, stop. Stop. You see, if you're a believer... You have the Holy Spirit. You can stop. You can. If, 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 if you're a believer and, and you've got 
a perverted, selfish form of love. And, 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 and you're looking at your husband or your, or your wife and you say, man, I don't love her right, man. This agape sacrificing, laying down my life. And we're going to get to a whole lot of that a little bit later in Ephesians. It's going to be really, really helpful. He starts talking about children and, and marriage and relationships. And here's what dad's doing. Here's what mom's. It's going to be awesome. But man, if, if you realize that your love is corrupt and perverted, that it's not right, maybe it's your love for your spouse. Maybe it's your love for others. Maybe agape is not there. Stop. You were saved by agape. Live in the likeness of your father. If you've got the selfish, weird version of love, this covetous thing, or if you're just a covetous person, you want what others have and you're striving and all that, stop. Put off the old self, Ephesians 4. Put on the new self in the likeness of God. Live in righteousness and holiness. Do your best. Fight, fight, fight. Stop. Do whatever God tells you to do this morning. Don't wait. Don't let the sun go down. Begin to take steps of obedience now. Beginning with prayer and confession. Ask him. Ask him for help. Ask him for power. Ask him for guidance. Ask him for leadership. And I'm telling you, he'll give it. He'll bring it to you. He never leaves his beloved children out there on their own. He always is there. He's always here with his loving arms, always here to restore, always here to lead, to guide, to forgive, to give mercy, to empower. That's who he is. That's what he will do for you if you will humble yourself like King David, confess your sin, cry out to him, and he will give you mercy and all that you need. And I'll tell you, this church will walk with you. We'll fight together. Because that's what we do.